you may or may not know, it was Owen's birthday yesterday. Um, he's looking pretty good for almost 40, isn't he? No, he's not. He's very much mid-30s um, before I make myself a new enemy. Uh, 36? 36. He, spent, he tells me he spent his day BMXing um, in typical Owen fashion. So I wonder if you've ever had an enemy. Now, I'm not talking about the Italian football team who are playing in the final of the Euro 2020s tonight. Um, an enemy, someone who is your nemesis, the Voldemort to your Harry Potter, so to speak. And speaking of Harry Potter, um, when I was 11 years old, I looked very much like Harry Potter. I had the same haircut, um, I had the same round glasses, I didn't have the scar, um, but I used to get all these, oi, Harry! Uh, references all the time. I'd be like, no, my name's James. But I'd moved from a primary school, which was very small. Um, there were 11 in my year. I moved to Worcester to go to secondary school. I had to get the train every day. And there were 100 in my year. Um, all of a sudden, I was very much um, not the big, smish, uh, big fish in the small pond in a primary school in Kidderminster. But I was very middle of the road. And out of the woodwork, pretty much from day one, stepped up my nemesis, Anthony. Anthony was the kind of kid who, just for fun, would take the padlock off his locker and he would lock it onto mine so that I couldn't get my geography books out to get to lesson on time. And I was the kind of kid who just really, really bothered. I was like really nervous. What's the teacher going to say? How am I going to get in trouble? Very much a goody two-shoes I was. He was the kind of kid who, when our family had to take two weeks of self-isolation because uh, we had a farm and it was the time of foot and mouth disease, 2001, um, when I came back in front of the rest of the class, he goes, where have you been? Have you had your foot stuck in your mouth? You know, these kind of stupid, inane jokes, which in front of everybody, they all just laughed. And I kind of inwardly folded. I really disliked Anthony. I guess eventually it got resolved. Probably the teacher would have brought us together and there would have been some kind of making up, you know, barely looking at each other, looking at the floor, kicking our heels, kind of like, okay, I forgive you, going our separate ways, muttering under our best how much we disliked each other. There was no way that I wanted resolution with this kid. He was my mortal enemy. But as we think about loving our enemies, that little example from 21 years ago when I was at school, that's not what it's really about. I realized that for many of us, loving our enemies is a really, really difficult topic. You might be going through it at the moment. There might be someone who you instantly bring to mind and go, yeah, that's the person, that's the situation. This is where the rubber really hits the road as we attempt to follow Jesus. For some of us, it might be something historic, something that has come from our past that it might bring up. So today, um, I'm not in, in any way undermining what your realization is, what your reality is. So from the start, I want to say, if anything that we speak about this morning impacts you in any way, we pray for you at the end of our gathering. Or if you're online, 
um, please reach out, pastoral.care at allsaintsworcester.org.uk. Is enemy love even possible? Could Jesus really be asking us to do that? Last week, Owen referred to the events of Selma, Alabama in 1965. And one of the leaders you probably know in the civil rights movement was Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was fighting against injustice. And he and his group of followers, they were talking one day and one of his friends said to him, could Jesus actually be asking us to do this? Could he be asking us to love our enemies. He said to Martin Luther King, I think that Jesus is the impractical idealist. This is just pie in the sky thinking. It's nice theory. It's good on paper. But when it comes to real life, I don't think it's possible. To which Martin Luther King turned to him and he said, I don't think that Jesus is the impractical idealist. He's the practical realist. See, Jesus, as he speaks to uh, the people in the Sermon of the Mount, this isn't just an over-egging uh, the pudding kind of a speech. This isn't hyperbole to try and make a point. He's being very real with them. To follow after me, he says, means to pray for those who persecute you, to love those people. That's verse 44 those who've impacted you and hurt you and belittled you and made you feel like nothing. Pray for them. Love them. But that's a bit much, isn't it, Jesus? That's too much for little old me. Surely that's for the super elite, holy, grade A Christians. Not just little old me in my situation and my circumstance. I'm not good enough to be able to do that. I'm not strong enough to be able to love my enemies. Someone else, 25 years before the civil rights movement, who was also fighting against injustice, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, theologian, someone who was standing up in the face of oppression against the Nazi regime in Germany. Someone who, when the state church had aligned themselves with the Reich, he was saying, this is not the way of the kingdom of God. We have to do something about this. And in one of his most famous books, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this. Loving one's enemy is not only an unbearable offense to the natural person. It demands more than the strength that a natural person can muster. This, friends, is exactly the point of loving your enemies. You cannot do this. I cannot do this on my own. We're not called to do this on our own. The best that we can offer is probably something akin to what Anthony and I did. Maybe a brief handshake, walking off, still muttering under our breath. Jesus is not asking us in our own strength to love our enemies, to forgive them. This is absolutely key. If you take nothing else away from this morning, let this be the message. God isn't waiting on the sidelines of our lives. He's not waiting at the end of the race saying, have you not sorted your stuff out with that person yet? 
He's the God who steps down in the person of Jesus, puts on flesh and blood and says, let me show you how I can do it. Let me show you how you can be reconciled. I'll go there first on your behalf. We, as humanity, actively chose to be on the other side, to reject God, to not follow after him, to humiliate him and to despise him. Jesus chose to move towards us in spite of that. He didn't take offense. He didn't give us what we deserve, tit for tat. He said, I'm coming to reconcile you to God. I'm coming to reconcile you to one another, to your enemies. And I'm coming to reconcile you to yourself, to heal your heart. Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, we were God's enemies. Not just the people who put Jesus there on the cross. Not just the people who bade for his blood and said, crucify, crucify. All of us, in rebellion to God, all of us have been enemies. And yet, through his death and his resurrection, all of us are offered restored relationship with God. Jesus went first, the prototypical enemy lover, so to speak. But he didn't just give us a real life example to follow. More importantly and crucially than that, he gave us what we needed to be able to do it. He gave us his spirit, his helper. He said, you can't do this on your own. You've got to find strength, not from within yourself, deep down, but from within the Holy Spirit, which wells up from inside. To turn it from being an impractical ideal, a nice theory, into a practical reality. You see, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything in our own strength. Only empowered by the Holy Spirit. And without the Spirit, we're in this state, this place of unforgiveness. And this is the default state of the world around us. You don't have to look very far to see broken relationship and unforgiveness. A did this to B, B did this to A, A hates B, B hates A. It um, accelerates and it exacerbates and there is no reconciliation. It's tooth for tooth, eye for eye. But Jesus says, I'm showing you a new way to live that will undermine that way of doing things, that will subvert the system of retaliation. And we can think there's no way that that reconciliation can happen. There's just not a chance. It happens in our personal relationships. It happens between families. It happens in businesses as people do each other over. And it happens between countries harrowing wars that we've seen over the last hundred years in particular. A friend described it to me, this unforgiveness, as like drinking poison yourself and then expecting the other person to die. Holding on to unforgiveness rots us from the inside out. It becomes this all-consuming, all-we-can-focus-upon thing. So what's the answer? How do we get from fractured relationship to 
whole and mended relationship. How do we get from death to life? Firstly, we've got to acknowledge that we can't do this on our own. And neither are we called to. Jesus isn't saying when you get to a super spiritual prowess, when you've achieved all of these things, when you've done enough quiet times or read your Bible enough, then you'll be able to do it. He says you can't do it this on your own. You need the Spirit of God. But what you can do, what we can do is open ourselves up to the Spirit and say, this is really hurting. This is really painful. And say, Spirit of God, I want you to come and minister to me in that place. To come and help us. To help us to pray for the other person, for the other situation. And when we begin to pray for the other person, something changes within us. Whether or not there is any possibility of reconciliation. When we pray for the other person, something changes. Louis Zamperini was uh, an American Olympian. He was a runner, and he was also a prisoner of war in Japan. And you can watch this in the movie Unbroken, a really great movie. And he was um, beaten, and he was made um, to look foolish in front of the rest of the prison by this one guard who was nicknamed the Bird in Japan. And um, the bird would do all of these terrible, terrible things to him, and Louis Zamperini would never respond. Years later, after he got released from the prisoner of war camp, he tried to reach out to the bird. He wanted there to be reconciliation. And this guy just wouldn't have it. He traveled over to Japan a number of times, knowing where he'd be, when he would be there, and the guy would have nothing to do with it. Someone interviewed Louis and they said, what on earth are you doing? Why are you spending your money, your energy, your effort, your emotion trying to reconcile with somebody who's hurt you so badly? Louis turned to him and he said, it's simple. Instead of hating him, I pray for him. That is the secret to life. So when we pray for people, it then gives us this strength through the Holy Spirit to then potentially be able to move towards the other person if it's possible. And I realize in some situations and circumstances that is just not possible. The other person might be dead or they might be, we might not know where they are. It might have been so far back within our history that there's no way of being reconciled to them. So Hear me right, it doesn't mean that if we don't move towards them that somehow um, our forgiveness is undermined or it's not counted as valid. Because God knows what the situation and the circumstance means. But it's only by praying for people that we can begin to move towards them. We're just going to watch a short video which um, tells the story of Emmanuel and Vincent and the way that they move towards one another and reconciliation.
My name is Parti Emmanuel and I participated in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. I murdered many Tutsi under the order of bad leadership and have spent six years in prison and four years in community service. While in prison, fellow prisoners invited me to try Alpha. I went but struggled to engage. I realized I needed to tell the truth about what I had done and wrote a letter asking for forgiveness of the relatives of those I had murdered. Life was so hard after being released from prison. I found my wife with two children that were not mine and I faced many heartbreaking situations. I didn't know how I was going to live with the genocide survivors after what I had done. My heart was filled with agony, loneliness and fear. Encouraged by Alpha in prison, I decided to do Alpha again. I learned that Jesus forgives and experienced love in a way I had never known before. With the help of a local pastor, I went to find Vincent, whose mother and grandmother I had killed, to ask for forgiveness. I now live in a village built for genocide survivors and perpetrators. Vincent lives in the same village. We have formed a friendship and I now experience peace like I haven't experienced it before. Day-to-day -day life continues to be a challenge, but I have found forgiveness and healing for the things that I have done. Got questions about life? Try Alpha. Life doesn't change overnight. As Emmanuel said, life continues to be a challenge. But Emmanuel did wrong, and you'd expect, surely, he deserved everything that came to him. But forgive, um, forgiveness is different to that. He couldn't make it right with the people that he'd murdered. Similarly, some people who've hurt us, we just physically cannot be reconciled to. God knows this. But when we can come to that place of saying, okay, God, I want to forgive. Or maybe it's a few steps back in saying, I want to want to forgive. God can begin to do something with our hearts. So as we end this political imagination section in our pattern series, I think this theme of forgiveness is absolutely crucial to every single one of us. Desmond Tutu, who is the Archbishop of Cape Town and an anti-apartheid activist, said, without forgiveness, there can be no future for a relationship between individuals or within and between nations. Forgiveness is not nebulous, it's not impractical or idealistic, it's thoroughly realistic. It's real political in the long run. So we offer 
forgiveness to others. It's like the building blocks of society get changed inside out and upside down. And we all have different types of enemies, whether that's from the neighbor who frustrates us so much, all the way through to someone who's done something as bad as Emmanuel. All can be restored. All can be made new through the Spirit of God. At all of these levels, unforgiveness and hate destroy. But forgiveness and reconciliation, they build up. They give us a future. In speaking to the crowds, Jesus wasn't saying, here's a way to escape from the world. He was saying, follow me and let's subvert the ways that the world does it. Let's change things from the inside out so that there's less destruction and brokenness and pain. Forgiveness is scandalous. Forgiveness is costly. But it's the only way to freedom. If you're willing and able in the building, would you stand with me? We're going to come to the table to take communion together. To that place where we are all equal at the foot of the cross.